Katie, what's up? Jesse, happy anniversary. Oh my God, I almost forgot. When, when is it? Uh, March 24th. It will be one year since we have started this podcast. What'd you get me? Uh, I uh, I don't want to tell you yet. I want it to be a surprise. Okay. Can I tell you what I got you? Please do. I got you a copy of a new book called The Quick Fix. Eh, what's it about? Uh, I don't know what it's about, but I figured I would buy a copy of your book and then just send you the receipt since the first anniversary is the paper year. Is that an actual uh, thing? The paper year? I don't know. Oh, is that like gold, silver, paper, blah, blah, blah? Yeah. It's like every year of your... You would know this if you were in a, in a marriage such as like me. Um, yeah. Every year of your marriage is like there's some sort of like dumb tradition of something that you're supposed to buy your partner. And since you're my partner and it's the paper year, I'm going to get a copy of your book. That's very kind. And show you the receipt. You're acting like it's my fault that when they legalize gay marriage, they outlawed straight marriage. <laughs> I would like to get married, but I, I can't anymore. Yeah. I guess my people probably... Uh, should apologize for that. Sorry, Jesse. It uh, it is pretty amazing that we've been doing this for a year. For I mean, first of all, it's just been a very weird year by anyone's standards. Second of all, I don't think either of us, uh, you know, I don't want to brag, but I don't think any of us, either of us, expected this to be this big and to do this well. It's been pretty amazing. I expected it. Really, this big. Eight million listeners per episode. You expected that? Eight million listeners an episode and eight million dollars a month. That's exactly what I expected. <laughs> and since I am a uh, an ace prognosticator, this is exactly what happened. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, patrons and free listeners alike. It's been a uh, a crazy ride. It's been life changing. And um, you know, other than the fact that it's nice to have a job like this, I, I think what satisfies me the most, and I think you share this feeling, is just like showing people that there's an appetite for this kind of stuff at a time when media is collapsing and getting stupider by the day. Right. And the longer we have done this podcast, the less likely it is that we will ever be able to get jobs in uh, actual institutions. Um, so <laughs> I hope it keeps going, especially after this week. Uh, we will get to that in a moment. Speak for yourself. I'm still trying to be an engineer at NASA and I'm waiting to hear back. Yeah. I hear uh, I hear Vox has some new uh, staff writer positions open. Maybe you should try one of those out. Uh, uh, okay. What's, what's, this, what's this podcast? This is Blocked and Reported and I'm Katie Herzog. I'm Jesse Single. And uh, yeah, we're going to spend most of the back half of this podcast. Katie, you have been following the coverage of this horrible mass shooting in Atlanta pretty closely, right? Right. We'll talk about that in a little while. But first, you wanted to wrap up some things about our last show? Yeah, a couple little things. One is um, on that the horrible woke alligator dad story. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, thank your lucky stars and or listen to our last episode. Someone just wrote in to clarify that it wasn't, as far as this person knew, it wasn't like a warning alligator sign. It was just a vaguer no swimming sign. I guess changes the story a little. It doesn't really – I still wouldn't criticize a dad who fought an alligator to try to save his son's life. It's still very fucked up. The toddler's still dead. The toddler is still dead. It is a, a truly horrible story, although also a crazy internet moment. And is but, also going to make absolutely no sense to, to people who haven't heard heard the last episode. <laughs> No, but that you know what? We're just going to plow straight ahead if that's okay with Bar you. Bar pod, no context. Bar pod, no context. The other thing is I got this note from like one of my few friends who I could call a uh, a quote-unquote DC insider. He basically pointed out that like Nira Tan did like her, her bid to be OMB head wasn't really stymied by the tweets per se. It was – a lot of it had to do with like – um. I don't want to make this boring, but like uh, she insulted Joe Manchin's daughter. Joe Manchin is like the paradigmatic ideal of the like centrist blue dog Democrat type who can stymie legislation. She insulted his daughter. It was as much about him as other stuff. Uh, stuff. Bernie Sanders was prepared to vote for her. 
all that said, we really just like her as a uh, internet history figure, and we're not we're not criticizing her on policy grounds or anything. The last thing is everyone said I mispronounced Seth Mnuchin's name, but you know I feel like we've set a precedent precedent on this podcast that we're we just don't really do proper name pronunciation is not our brand, right? Right. I've noticed that you have mispronounced his name many times over the course of the past year, but I think it's kind of cute. So I wasn't planning on correcting you, but our our listeners did it for you. So it's like a toddler, when a toddler says like, I want a Wilkshake, and the parents are just like, that's too cute to correct them. Okay, thank you. I'm glad you see me that way. Yeah, you're my toddler. Um, I think I also mispronounced uh, Hamish McKenzie's name. Apparently Hamish is not Hamish, it's Hamish, and apparently this is like (laughs) a common name. It's a Scottish like, name, right? A Scottish erasure, apparently. Apologies to Hamish. While we're at it, this is <laughs> I called Rukmini Kalamachi a woman of color, like, I think two months ago, and I just forgot to correct it, because she's Romanian-American. She's not a woman really? of color. Really? Yeah. Oh, I thought she was from the Middle East. Uh, no, I did too. But And I think people think that, especially because she does reporting on the Middle East. But um, again, it's just not our brand to get this stuff right. <laughs> All right, that's is that all for corrections for the day? Probably not, but let's just let's just plow ahead. Okay, before we get to the talk of the the, the big national event of the week, let's talk a little bit about your week, Jesse. Yeah, it's been one of my like most two online crazy weeks. We talked a little bit about this in the Patreon episode, but there's this I would argue abortive attempt to contrive like a moral panic against Substack. Different people have different complaints, but what a lot of them boil down to or seem to boil down to is that people like me have substacks and are doing pretty well. And then people like Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi have substacks and are doing great, like making huge amounts of money. So someone like a few people have tried to argue that because substack offered some people advances, I was not one of them. This is somehow a problem. I've had genuine trouble understanding their argument. I'm also curious why they're not talking about like, I think Roxanne Gay's on there. I bet they paid her. Oh, that's another error. I made a, <laughs> I made a remark about like, if Roxanne Gay came to Substack, I'm sure they would offer her in advance. Someone pointed out she is on oh, Substack. Oh, really? But yeah, uh, I'm not a subscriber. I will right after this episode wraps up. I'll pay, I'll pay for a year. Um, it's hard to understand what these guys are mad about. So the main antagonist and then one of them is Jude Doyle. He's a longtime feminist writer. Um, one of his complaints was that I write trans eliminationist rhetoric, which seems my, my interpretation of that term is like, I write stuff about wanting trans people to die or no longer exist. I've written a lot of stuff. I can't remember every little article I've written. But I feel like I wouldn't have written an article saying that and then forgotten about it. I mean, maybe you repressed it. This could be a recovered memory thing because you'll remember you'll remember from our recovered memory episode that that's a real thing. Um, this there was a giant clusterfuck on Twitter. Jude Doyle eventually left Substack because they. It sounds like his uh, he was mad they wouldn't censor or or kick off me and Graham Linehan. Graham has done stuff I genuinely disagree with, and I don't think he handles these issues well. That's Maybe that's a subject for another episode. No one even pointed to a Substack post I'd done they were offended, that they were offended by. It was just like my name associated with the platform so tainted it. But um, 
along the way, Jude Doyle said that I had stalked, stalked. This is a direct quote. Sorry, go ahead. Okay. I think that you should also clarify here. So this conversation is happening in the pages of Substack. So Jude Doyle is a writer who was on Substack until this week, and Jude Doyle made these allegations against you on Substack. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that I have stalked, stalked. I'll keep saying that word, stalked, that I've stalked numerous people. Let's just let's just read the whole paragraph. Go for it. Okay, so this was in a Substack post called In Queers We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. This was published on March 12th. This is going to be a little bit of a repetition for our patrons who heard us talk about this on the last uh, patron-only episode, but here's what Jude wrote. Increasingly, Substack is tolerating and funding extreme trans-eliminationist rhetoric. They host Jesse Single, a high-profile supporter of anti-trans conversion therapy, who is also widely known to fixate on and stalk trans women in and around the media industry. I would list Jesse's targets, but at this point, I don't know a trans woman in media who doesn't have a story. Yeah, so I mean, look, we we did all the venti I want to do about this on our Patreon episode. People can look into that. Um this stuff is just getting to a really insane point. John K. at Quillette, I did not know he was working on this. He did a long piece on this and this like years-long campaign to spread these rumors about me uh, that has been very infuriating and which I should add is completely and entirely different from the question of whether my articles are good or correct. People can and have and will criticize me for overemphasizing this point, underemphasizing that point, getting a statistic wrong, that's all completely kosher. That wouldn't we we wouldn't be talking about this, but like to accuse someone of stalking is is really fucked up. And Jude Doyle has a long history of of launching crazy accusations at people. Most recently, Jude accused Liz Brunig, a New York Times columnist, of threatening her child with a sock puppet account. Jude did some sort of like uh, CSI style investigation of the writing style of some sock puppet account and decided it was Liz. Just just casually tweet to your tens of thousands of followers that Liz Brunig, a New York Times columnist, threatened the life of your child. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think I've said what I'm going to say about this. It, it's every, everyone is. Uh, I've gotten so many emails like, you should sue this person. You should sue that person. If I was going to take any action of that sort, I obviously wouldn't talk about it. But obviously, there's a huge. You know, imagine how that changes the narrative. I like. I think at this point, people understand how insane this is, and I've gotten a big wave of support. It's just like it, it's getting – it was deranged years ago, but watching sort of more mainstream figures pick this stuff up, it, it's now beyond deranged. I, I think we should back up just a little bit. So for people who haven't been following this saga, know exactly what happened. So a couple weeks ago, a guy named Ryan Broderick, who is a disgraced former BuzzFeed writer who was fired after um, it emerged that he was a serial plagiarist – Wrote a Substack accusing you and Glenn Greenwald and all of the all of like the usual characters Barry Weiss, Andrew Sullivan. Uh, I, I don't know if Matt Iglesias was in that one. Probably Matt Taibbi. Uh, basically being you know transphobic. There's a lot of pushback. Uh, Jude Doyle. Hey, why don't why don't I just? I'd like to be precise about this. Let me just pull that up and read the paragraph if that's okay. Sure. Here's exactly what he wrote. Greenwald, meaning Glenn Greenwald, is part of a cadre of writers who position themselves as neither left-wing or right-wing, instead focusing on culture war drama about being canceled and trans people in bathrooms and woke college students to make the actually very standard and traditional right-wing status quo that they're defending sound slightly less tedious. 
other writers in this network are people like New York Times columnist Barry Weiss, Andrew Sullivan, Jesse Single, and, I'd argue, Slate Star Codex writer Scott Alexander Siskind as well. There are more. They are becoming more closely connected to the dinner party turfs in the UK and Ireland. Still don't know or care what that means. I think it's a party uh, with lots of lentils. Lots of lentils. Almost all of them use Substack as their home base. Um, I don't believe any of the people listed in this list of, of notorious names has ever said anything negative about trans people using the bathroom that lines up with their gender identity. I interviewed Laura June Grace, Laura Jane Grace. She's the front woman of Against Me, a band I've loved since 2002, uh, about her activism efforts on that front in North Carolina. So, like, Ryan Broderick, like Doyle, is just sort of lying or passing along stuff he heard online without checking it. But to list, it looks like, five writers and accuse them of being in favor of bathroom bills when I don't think any of us are, that's like, I mean, I guess that's a level of quality you'd expect of someone who was fired for plagiarism. But but this blog post just launched sort of a crazy week that um, Doyle got involved and things really went off the rails. Right. So a bunch of people, including Jude Doyle, have now said that they're going to be leaving Substack in protest over uh, so Substack's platforming of people like you. So um, which is sort of hilarious because the platform that at least a couple of them are talking about going to is Ghost, which is even more of a sort of like free speech, hands off, laissez faire platform than than Substack is. Um, so in the midst of this, Brianna Wu, uh, who is a ran for Congress in I think Maryland, um, decided- no, 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 Massachusetts. Okay. Oh, Massachusetts. Oh, interesting. Hometown, hometown hero. All right. Um, so Brianna Wu. Who you can tell more about sort of the background about how Brianna Wu got famous. I was blissfully uh, offline when uh, when when Brianna's origin story began. Um, but Brianna Wu decided to uh, jump into this particular smear campaign against you and tweeted that she had her own Jesse single story. And when she was ready, she was going to share the receipts. Okay, Brianna Wu. She wrote. I have my own Jesse single stories. I've never shared publicly. One day I will. And I have receipts. I don't know how many sources have to talk about wildly unethical behavior before credible journalists decide not to be associated with someone. Um, she has the receipts, but she's just not going to show you. Brianna Wu supposedly has horror stories about you, but won't share the receipts for these horror stories, basically won't provide any evidence that these horror stories, these this vague whatever you did thing happened, um, which I think is sort of irresponsible. You know, like if Brianna Wu has some evidence that could take you down once and for all and is not sharing it, um, it seems like she could potentially be, you know, harming trans women. And what's more, uh, so, so Brianna Wu tweeted this. I got involved um, Bri- <laughs> because Brianna Wu had at that point, uh, unwisely, she had not blocked me on Twitter. And uh, so I looked at my like prior DM history with Brianna Wu. And it turned out that she had popped into my DMs uh, in 2018 when I wrote something that was apparently like problematic about the non-binary identity and said that she agreed with me. So she basically came out as a turf. She came out as a a turf in my DMs, right? Um, She also then proceeded to like shit talk you. Um, One of the complaints about you was that you apparently had interviewed her and didn't use any of the material. Um, Apparently to her, that is some, that like that is akin to harassment. Uh, To me, that is- I, I, okay. If you ask me if I've interviewed X or Y and I talked to them for an hour, which is what I'm claiming, I will usually remember it. I do not remember interviewing her. I also, she's not an expert on- 
any of the subjects I've written about, uh, it's possible I interviewed her. Cause like what happens when you write about trans issues is everyone's like, here are the three people everyone's supposed to interview. And they're, um, it's possible I interviewed her. A, I have no memory of it. B, she's not a knowledge, like she doesn't know anything about youth gender dysphoria or the Zucker clinic or any of the subjects that would matter here. So if I did interview her and not use it, that's what journalists do sometimes when, when we don't, you interview people all the yeah. time. Like I think in, I think in her brain when she says she has receipts and this is also based on th- threatening emails she sent or a threatening email she sent me when she was running for Congress, she believes I committed an unethical act by interviewing a few people realizing I didn't think they had a handle on the thing I was writing about, which was one particular clinic and not quoting them. She views that as unethical. And it's also funny if you're like a, a Gamergate historian, the whole idea was that that movement's like real concern was just ethics and journalism. And now Brianna Wu is ethics and journalism in me. So it's kind of funny if you're a nerd. Right. Can you t- explain briefly what her role in Gamergate is? Or is that too, uh, too, too off the path? Uh, I, she was like... <sighs> The whole complicated thing about this is like I got emails from people who were in Gamergate, which was supposedly this consumer revolt against unethical um, gaming journalism that I found was like much more that they were mad that there were, you know, nerdy, arty games about depression and so-called walking simulators. I thought one out of every hundred points they made were fair, but it became this like really heated online subreddit, Kotaku in action I found they often misunderstood journalism, like not knowing the difference between opinion and news pieces. Um, They were not all actively harassing people online. That's like a dumb thing people say who didn't follow this closely. I got emails from some of them. They would just be like, hear me out, watch my YouTube video, which is two hours long, blah, blah, blah. Like some of them were annoying, but what would often happen is there would be these online fights with people like Brianna Wu and then 4chan or, or these image boards that are not directly connected with Gamergate, but like love to stoke drama. This is my theory. They would actually harass the shit out of people. So I do think Brianna Wu got harassed a lot. I think people willfully ignored the difference between political tribes and the fact that like any online controversy, 4chan people will jump into and try to exacerbate. So I think some of the harassment pinned on Gamergaters, uh, was them some of it was four channers and it's just this shit is hard to explain it was very messy in the moment but brianna Wu came to fame by being a gamergate target and do you after your experience with brianna Wu and just like you know you must know more about her now than you did in 2016 or whenever gamer 20 i don't know whenever gamergate was do you uh trust her account of what happens i would be a little more suspicious, but I also I also think she was harassed. Uh, I mean, because right now, like, she's claiming that you've harassed her. Well, she's claiming she phrased it in a vague enough way. She says she has receipts, and then that tweet is about my unethical behavior. Right, but she's also saying, like, in the last few days, I mean, she blocked me now, but, um, okay, so basically what happened is, like, she tweets this idiotic thing about you, refuses to provide any of the so of the so-called receipts. Um, one of our followers, a guy named Colin Moriarty, who's a, who's a games journalist or does something in, in the gaming world, um, he offered her $1,000 if she would provide the, provide the evidence, $1,000 would go to the charity of her choice. 
A few days later, we now have well over $50,000 worth of, uh, worth of pledges, um, to the, the charity of Brianna Wu's choice if she will only provide the receipts of your wrongdoing. So not only by not providing the receipts, she, not only is she potentially harming other trans women, she's also, she's also denying the orphans. You know, think of how many mouths that could feed. Think of how many hormone blockers you could pay for for $60,000. I, we don't like to exaggerate on this show, but I feel like in light of what we know, it's safe to say that Brianna Wu is literally murdering people. I think she is literally murdering young ones. We, yeah, orphans. This is, not a, this is not an accusation we make lightly. We, we, we phrase ourselves so carefully, but Brianna Wu is killing people by not taking this money. Okay, so here's my point. So she uh, claims that you, know, that you have done something. She doesn't say what it was. People raise all of this money for a charity of her choice. She still refuses to provide any evidence of any sort of wrongdoing. And while blocking people who ask while evidence. blocking people for, who ask for evidence, and then complaining about her mentions because she's being harassed by the people who are asking for mentions. <laughs> and so here's so so the, during Gamer Day, did you see actual like hard evidence that she was being uh, targeted with rape threats or death threats or anything like that, or was it is it possible that it was just this continuation of like the concept creep of harm, um, where people asking her for evidence, demanding evidence or whatever, um, are you know accused of harassment and i wasn't there for this so i i don't actually know what happened but i will say that i like don't exactly trust brianna Wu. i will say that uh some people in the anti-gamergate camp do that thing where any negative tweets at them are taken as harassment it could literally be requests for evidence uh one time i quote retweeted someone to say like i don't agree with this what this person's saying about me I think this was the first time I got really piled on by lefties and and she melted down completely and subsequently said that I would not stop until she was dead. That's close to a direct quote. Jesse Single will not stop until I'm dead. There's a screenshot somewhere. This was because I quote retweeted her. So some of these folks do not understand the difference between like people asking you for evidence or saying you're a jerk for lying and like actual harassment. I think that line was blurred sometimes. I also think with people like Zoe Quinn and Brianna Wu, they received actual harassment because like there are there are message boards like 4chan that really do harass people. That's a real thing. And Zoe Quinn, she's the one who I think last year she uh, accused an ex-boyfriend of sexual assault or, or something like that, some sort of sex crime. And then he subsequently a couple of days later killed himself. It's that, that Zoe Quinn, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a – was it post-millennial article about that? Someone investigated that and found that her claims weren't – didn't have much merit. Anytime you're talking about suicide, especially if you're a media figure, you you need to be careful. You can't do that thing of like, this happened and so the person totally. killed themselves. John Ronson did a whole good series about this. Um, I don't want to wade into that because I don't know the details enough. I'll just include mentions in the sh- um, links in the show notes so people can read the coverage of that. Because I, I remember reading the story and it seemed like this reporter, despite me not always thinking the post-millennial does a great job, I, I found this account compelling. Right. Anyway, this is just to say these are people with whom uh, drama sort of surrounds them both. Um, so Brianna Wu, so to catch up, Brianna Wu um, refuses to provide the evidence that you have done anything wrong, um, refuses the $60,000 uh, that has been raised for a charity of her choice to prove that you've anything done wrong, that you've done anything wrong. And a lot of people have, have said, it was sort of beautiful to watch this. Like we got two people, including a sort of famed tech billionaire who I won't, I won't mention his name. Um, it's not Peter Thiel, but we got Two, two like very high pledges to 
two bad pledges for $10,000. And then a lot of just like readers and listeners and friends were offering $1,000 or $2,000 to support you in this. Their money is all safe. Um, <laughs> yeah, you guys will be fine. Yeah, it's sort of empty pledges. I still appreciate all of them. I think this is great. <laughs> I pledge I pledge $10 million. Yeah, yeah, totally. You can have the next month's Patreon. Nobody's, nobody's going to have to... Uh, pay up anything because Brianna Wu is not going to provide any evidence. And if she does, like, God, like, what is it going to be, like, Photoshop dick pics or something? Um, the, the most likely thing will be evidence. I'm not I'm not denying the possibility I interviewed her. I genuinely don't remember. The most likely thing will be, like, he interviewed me and then he ignored what right. I said, which I did multiple times because I talked to people who didn't know what they right. were talking and about. And this is also just a part of the reporting process. And this has, this has happened to me a bunch of times where I spend, you know, an hour or two talking to somebody and then the piece never comes out or they don't use my voice or whatever, which is fine. Um, it's, like, a little bit annoying, but whatever. That's just a part of the process. Can, can, can I read the, the threatening email she sent oh, me? Oh, please do. Yes. After – after this, I'd like to wrap up the the complaining and whining because I've gotten so much support and we got like a surge of Patreon donations. I got a surge of newsletter. I have a newsletter, jessysingle.substack.com. People flocked. It's been fucking amazing. And I'm, you know, we've we've been frank about the fact that we're worried people are trying to ruin our reputation and our ability to write for mainstream places. On the other hand, this shit isn't working. Like all the people bitching about Substack left. I got a big boost. I don't think any of these were people who were like doing well on the platform anyway. I think a lot of this is resentment. All that said, here is what Brianna Wu sent me. At the time, she was a con- congressional candidate. If I were a congressional candidate, I don't know. I feel like I wouldn't want to send journalists threatening emails. Isn't that not uh, not polite? It's probably not the best idea. What was the date? The date on this? 12-5-2017. The subject line is, I hope you are able to hear this critique you're getting. I am so disappointed in the journalistic standards you've held yourself to. Honestly, interviewing scores of trans women for that desistance piece and ignoring anything to the contrary of what you want to write, that's a career-ending offense. There are two options. The first, you turn this behavior around today, preferably offer a public apology, and be a lot more ethical with your sourcing. You can't tap dance past stuff that doesn't fit your story. Actually, you can't tap Dan's past stuff. You doesn't fit. Oh, whatever. I do typos and emails too. The second is far more likely. You keep on this path and sooner or later, the journalistic shortcuts you take end up in front of an editor and all of this becomes public. I publicly posted this email because I don't know what it means. Get your shit together, dude. It's not just bad for trans people. It's going to make you a cautionary tale they teach in journalism schools. Uh, My career, I'm doing fine. This was... um, yeah, this was when she was running for Congress. Get your shit together, clean your fucking bedroom, or you're not going to be able to go to the movies on Friday. We should move on. It sounds whiny, but imagine someone publicly posting that about you. I know this person did wrong. I have receipts. And then people ask them for the receipts and you're like, eh, no, I shan't be showing you. Like, yeah, what she, the fuck is that? She sort of, she was like, I'll do it on my, when I'm good on ready, I'll do it on my own time. I mean, you basically got me too'd. Um, and the great thing though is that now you you finally have enough clout so that people are actually demanding some sort of evidence. I mean, I've said this before, but all of these people who are accusing you of things like stalking and harassment, there's no victims here. Like, not one person has stood up, with the exception of maybe Caitlin Burns, which whole other story. Links in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, we'll link to a previous uh, episode about that situation. So 
they're they're all i mean they remind me of of QAnon believers who don't need to have victims to believe that there's a conspiracy so what was weird and to me telling is like a couple nights ago someone dms me and they're like check out this piece john k wrote about you in quillette because my brain is so fucking twitter poisoned my first thing was like uh-oh people are gonna assume because it's quillette that you know they won't believe you or they won't believe this of course that's not what happened. It like this piece collects years of this bullshit, points out that it's insane, and I'm getting emails from normies left and right, like friends of my dad who are like, I'm sorry this happened to Jesse. This is really unfair. Cause once you expose these people, the average normal person who is not Twitter poisoned understands that you can't hurl accusations like this without without, you know, being a bad person. So um I'll be fine. It's just, it's, I'm tired of this and I want it to stop. And I, I feel bad even, you know, dedicating this much sort of airtime to it. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm lucky to be in the position I am. I really am. This has been the best fucking week that I've had this year. This has been, I'm not the one being accused of stalking or harassing. So I just get to reap all of the rewards. I'm glad this is fun. I'm glad you have your good time. I'm having such a good time. And just the simple act of standing up for you, which I should be doing anyway, because I'm uh, I'm not a terrible person. And also I financially benefit when you're doing well. Um, you know, for just for the, the simple act of standing up for you, I look like a fucking hero. This has just been, Jesse, I hope this never ends. I want more rumors, S- more people. Please, Jude Doyle, start your next Substack devoted just to Jesse's wrongdoing. This has been the greatest week of my life. As of production time, Jude Doyle has moved on to Glenn Greenwald and attacking Glenn Greenwald, a gay man, for having a husband who is too young for him. That's the the hill Jude Doyle has decided to set up on next, and I wish him the best. Yeah. Yeah, good luck in your fight against the against Glenn Greenwald who has been with his husband for like 20 years. The thing is, if I if I'm melting down on Twitter, I will get multiple notes from friends of mine on Twitter pointing out that I'm melting down, saying so more politely, and they'll convince me to stop for a while. For a while. Who for a while, for 30 seconds. Who who is that person in Jude Doyle's life? Why is that person absent after years of this? I don't know. I mean, Jude Doyle has uh has written about their own mental health issues. So, um maybe maybe that's also going on here. Um last thing I want to say about this, I find it incredibly ironic that the concept of harassment at least online has has crept so far that the simple act of asking for evidence uh, over an extraordinary claim is often considered now harassment. At the same time, the very people who will consider that harassment seem to have absolutely no problem with actual libel. So anyway, this probably isn't over. I'm sure more allegations uh, will emerge from you and I will be happy to spread them. So everybody, um, uh, my DMs are open. Any any juice you have about Jesse, just Send it my way. Did you say any Jews or any juice? <laughs> Both. Jewy juice. I got everyone's got a few Jews in their closet. I will let me make one last point actually. Uh our buddy, friend of the podcast, Freddie DeBoer, brilliant leftist writer. He just started a Substack. He's been open about his mental health problems. He made a false allegation against someone during what was a mental health crisis. I, I don't think anyone denied disputes that. What's interesting to me, he did the most sort of straightforward apology possible on his blog. I think this was like two years ago now. He said, I launched a false apology, a false accusation. I knew what I was doing. I apologize. My mental health was part of this, but it's not an excuse. 
Years later, people are still badgering him for that, treating that as a reason not to take him seriously. These are many of the same people who will spread the exact same shit about me, who like it, the the absence of any principles except who is my online friend and who is my online enemy is just disgusting. Right. So I hope everybody has enjoyed watching Jesse Meltdown over the past week. I certainly have. And uh, hopefully it won't be the last time. I have a book coming out in two and a half weeks. I'm not going to be tweeting much more about this shit. It's just I, I – my whole – one of the main reasons I was looking forward to the book is it is not about culture war bullshit. So I hope we can uh, get back on track on that. Um, should we do a break before moving on to the next subject? Yeah, let's do it. Katie, with the uh, year anniversary of the podcast approaching, I have to wonder, what's the best thing that's happened to you in this last year? My butthole is cleaner than it's ever been. I thought you'd say that. Because, Jesse, I have the Hello Tushy Modern Bidet Attachment, which cleans your butthole with a precise stream of sparkling clean water. Is it, is it sparkling water? It's not sparkling water. It's not bubble water. That would sting a little bit. The future of toileting has arrived. Okay, it's technically been around for centuries, but hideously expensive, costing thousands. Now, the brand new Hello Tushy 3.0 Modern Bidet Attachment is here to level the playing field. It's stylish, eco-friendly, easy to install, and it's affordable. Hello Tushy 3.0 doesn't just cleanse your butt with a precise stream of fresh water not sparkling, it cleans itself before and after it's used with the Smart Spray automatic self-cleaning nozzle. It also attaches to your existing toilet. It requires no electricity or additional plumbing, and it cuts toilet paper use by 80%, so the Hello Tushy bidet pays for itself in just a few months. Because with Hello Tushy, you don't wipe it all. Just poop, spray, dry, and go. And the sanitation is simple. The Schmutz Shield offers easy cleaning and the knobs are naturally antimicrobial. Plus, every Hello Tushy bidet attachment comes with a 60-day risk-free guarantee and a 12-month warranty. Join millions of happy Hello Tushy customers right now and have a clean butt with every flush. Our listeners can go to hellotushy.com slash barpod for 10% off plus free shipping. Get 10% off plus free shipping and get your butt clean at hellotushy.com slash barpod. That's hellotushy.com slash barpod. So Katie, I've certainly had my own controversy this week. Why don't I, uh, why don't we dump you in the hot water right now? You've been following this whole horrible Asian massage parlor massacre thing pretty closely, right? Right. So as people probably know by now, um, this week, a 21-year-old man in Georgia went on a killing spree. He murdered eight people, um, six of whom were Asian women. And uh, as you can imagine, the immediate response to this, particularly on uh, Twitter and in the mainstream media, was to assume um, that this guy who was white uh, did this as an act of, of, of terrorism, of white supremacy. And then you look at the guy's picture and he's got this like scraggly beard and he looks like he does look like he might have been an extra in deliverance. Um, so it's not hard to see why people uh, would immediately make that assumption, especially, you know, in the past few months or the past year, I guess there's been this uh, spike in, um, in what are supposedly hate crimes against uh, Asian Americans. A lot of people attribute that to Trump's rhetoric and calling the coronavirus the Wuhan flu and things like that. Um, what is pointed out less often is that quite a number of these high-profile attacks on Asian Americans have been committed by black people, um, which somehow does not seem to complicate the narrative at all. And so you will see lots of tweets, think pieces, etc. about how um, black attacks on Asian people are also a symptom of white supremacy. So even before this shooting, I, you know, I'd been nervous about chiming in on this, and I'm not really nervous about talking about a lot of stuff, but it, it just felt like 
many of these cases, including in places like San Francisco and Oakland, the details often suggested some combination of a robbery motive or a mental health issue. Sometimes you would have to go like three or four links deep, clicking from like an NPR story through multiple sources to get to an explanation of like what we know about a crime. I think some of these were anti-Asian hate crimes. I think in other cases, it's hard to disentangle that from a pandemic year where probably more people are facing economic strain, more likely to commit robberies. And, you know, there are just, there are some neighborhoods where there are a lot of like elderly Asian people who are, who are easy victims. And these cases are horrible. And in some cases people have died. But I find if you like, if you suggest that a a hasty, oversimplified narrative might not be accurate, people act like you're saying the death itself isn't tragic or, or that you aren't opposed to racism. Yeah, it's very strange. People seem to want uh, random acts of violence or robbery to be hate crimes for some reason. I guess that satisfies something in us. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not hard to imagine that there would be a spike in genuine uh, hate crimes, um, especially in the past year. Um, but also when, yeah, when you dig into these individual stories, sometimes it looks like it's less about a particular racial animus and just like this person was viewed as an easy target, which maybe that, maybe, maybe that, maybe that is a part of a uh, white supremacy, um, or black supremacy, I, I suppose. Well, the, look, there's different groups. There's like anti-black Jewish racism. There's anti-Asian black sentiment, definitely anti-black. It, everyone hates everyone. The issue isn't it's impossible for black people to be racist against Asians. The instance is pinning it on Trump and saying that they were radicalized by his ostensibly white nationalist rhetoric. Unless you have strong evidence of that, that doesn't really make any sense. And I, I actually reached out to the San Francisco police department a few weeks ago. I didn't end up writing on this, but they told me, I think since March of 2020, which is when like lockdown started, they were aware of one incident where it was known that someone approached an Asian and made some sort of like, Trumpish reference. And that was a case where they brandished a knife and then walked away. So no one was assaulted. So these assaults are occurring and these robberies are occurring, but there does not appear to have been a spate of like Trumpy attacks. But of course, when something like this happens, like this uh, most recent uh, shooting in, in Georgia, the immediate response is to blame it on uh, on racism and, and white supremacy. Yeah, sorry. I was just going to ask, could, could you just r- run down briefly the nut, if you have in front of you, I really, this is one of those weeks when you're way ahead of the story than me, the number of massage parlors and victims? Because it was it was two white victims and six Asian ones, I think. Yeah, that's correct. So this guy went out on a killing spree visiting these different massage parlors. He was apparently on his way to Florida to continue this, uh, this like, crime spree um, when he was caught. And what he told investigators was that this was not he wasn't motivated by racial animus that he was what he called a sex addict. He was apparently deeply religious. He was Christian and he struggled with his own desire to have sex with these women. So these were places that he frequented. So there was some reporting in USA Today that uh, that looked at potential motives besides this, uh, this race angle. But here's what it says. Long. So his name was uh, Robert Aaron Long. Long was deeply religious and could not control his desire to visit massage parlors and engage in sexual acts, something that sent him into deep bouts of depression, said Tyler Bayless, 
who lived with Long for six months in 2019 and 2020 at the Maverick Recovery Center in Roswell, Georgia. Long would frequently relapse and then express guilt because of his Christian faith, Bayless said. So this this information that this was po- possibly motivated less by racial animus than his own like Christian guilt over um, over going to these massage parlors came from the investigators who were who like who caught the guy or the cops who caught the guy. And so what you've seen is that people who, for instance, journalists who write about race and racism. Um, and and seem more focused on this issue, assume that this is a racist act, and then and then you have sex workers uh, who are saying that no, this was tar- he was targeting sex workers in particular, and so it's this sort of like tug of war about who can claim these victims, and it's honestly a little bit grotesque to watch because these people have been completely flattened. It's like they don't exist as individuals at all. They're only political pawns here um, in the fight against either racism or like the war against sex workers. Um, and, and the truth is like nobody knows yet entirely what motivated this guy. And he's not dead. So this is one of the rare cases where we can like actually hopefully get to the root of it. If there's no evidence that he actually was racist, I don't think we're going to see people saying, I'm sorry, like, never mind. This was actually about misogyny or Christian guilt or sex or whatever. I think they're just going to continue to double down on this narrative that if the Asian, if the women killed were Asian, this must have been a hate crime. What's weird is this, this, I agree with you. We don't know for sure. But in terms of mass shootings where like often you ca- it takes a long time to discern a motive, the story we have is pretty straightforward and would seem to link it directly to feelings of shame about his own patronization of sex workers and and in a deranged way, taking it out on them, right? It feels like we do have a pretty clear motive. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people are discounting this because it came from the Georgia Georgia police, um, you know, as though as though they're covering this up. Um, Why? They're just li- – they're lying? They're saying the guy – the wit- Well, okay. So here's another thing that happened. Okay. So during a press conference after his arrest, one of the cops was relaying what, what uh, Long told investigators. And he said – he had a he had a bad day. So Aaron Rupar from Vox took a clip of that and he put it on Twitter. And Aaron Rupar is sort of notorious for we've talked about him on the show before. He's notorious for taking clips out of context, adding a misleading headline or misleading caption, and then they go wildly viral. And then the media picks up on it, and this narrative just like fucking spreads. And so in this case, what Aaron Rupar made it sound like he made it sound like this was the cop's opinion that the cop was just sort of dismissive and in this very like inarticulate, insensitive way it was like he. He was just having a bad day. No. Everyone freaked out about that. It right. became immediately a grandstanding platform. Yes, it became the truth. Kathy Young, uh, she pointed out that if you actually watch the clip, what he's saying is like he's conveying what what the shooter told investigators. Of course, like that didn't change anything. Like you can try to correct this as much as you want. And it's not going to fucking work. Like the, the the myth is already out there. And then so it turns out that that maybe maybe even that cop or another cop on the force had posted some like shitty like China flu, Wuhan, Wuhan Kung flu or whatever meme on Facebook. So I think what people would say is like the cops are racist. They are trying to cover this up because the cops are racist. But the thing is, it's like the guy himself, uh, Robert Aaron Long, like if you're actually – a white supremacist terrorist, part of terrorizing people is claiming responsibility for it so that it does actually terrorize the people you want to terrorize. Like what sort of white supremacist is going to hide the motivation for his crimes if the motivation is to actually terrorize people of color? That'd be like if like after the towers fell, Osama bin Laden was like, it wasn't me. 
Al-Qaeda didn't do that. Right. Or he said, like, oh, we did it, but we did it because, like, I don't know, like, I got a bad burger at McDonald's or whatever. Like, what's like, like, how does it help your cause to not uh, not pinpoint the exact motive? So it's just I I'm like having a hard time buying that he was motivated by racial animus and lying about it because, like, he's okay with killing eight people, but he doesn't want to be seen as a racist. The, the, the other thing is, like, there are complicated reasons having to do with, like, social networks that different groups get assigned different roles. Like, I, I live in a part of Brooklyn where a lot of the bodega owners are, are Arab uh, or South Asian and, and all from the same few countries. It's just, like, social networks and migration patterns. Similarly, similarly like, there are parts of L.A. where there are a lot of, like, Korean um, convenience store owners and laundromat owners. These are just these are real things. They're not just stereotypes. There are just random reasons why why Asian women be come to work for these parlors. So it can both. I mean, they're Asian owned, right? And, yeah, and the victims were mostly Asian. So it could both be that his anger was at sex workers, but that for these other random reasons, if he went after sex workers in these communities, they were more likely to be Asian. But that is. If we want to understand his motive, which we should, that's different from being like him being like, I'm going to kill some people because they're Asian. Right. Like, why would he not go to a Chinese restaurant or something like that if he just like wanted to kill Asians? Why would he target these people in particular? He's obviously targeting them because they are involved in the sex trade. And if, you know, what he is, has told investigators are true, it comes from some like deep personal guilt. Sometimes a murder is just a murder and it's not fucking political. And, you know, we saw this like... We saw this after uh, after the Pulse nightclub shooting. Yeah. People, understandably, myself included, assumed that the Pulse nightclub shooting uh, was a homophobic hate crime because it seems obvious. If someone goes and kills 50 people at a gay club, of course, they're a homophobe. Well, uh, several years later, um, there was uh, Omar Mateen, the shooter. His wife was on trial for like collusion or something like that. And it turned out that... Uh, he didn't know it was a gay club. He apparently asked a asked a security guard where all the women were, and he was apparently motivated more by his allegiance to ISIS and his anger over American foreign policy than he was by homophobia. The guy was probably homophobic. If he was a supporter of ISIS, he was probably homophobic. I think we can assume that. But that doesn't mean that, that the Pulse uh, nightclub massacre was actually motivated in particular by his, uh, you know, his homophobia. Um, and and this is a problem because if we want to, like, prevent these things from happening, we actually do need to get to the root um, of the cause and not just make these assumptions based on who the, who the victims are or who the targets are. You don't think he was a member of ISIS's famous uh, Rainbow Brigade? <laughs> yeah, Log Cabin ISIS. Um, I, I, I mean, I wrote a piece forever ago for New York magazine. There was, I don't even remember which mass shooting there was. It's America. Yay. There's so many. Um, but in this case, people were blaming the mass shooting on whiteness, like capital W whiteness. And I wrote a piece making the same points, just like, if we have no evidence for racial motive, why would you rush to assign this to something that just happens to tie into your politics? Like that's so counterproductive. And you know, this is about clout chasing and moral grandstanding on some people's parts. For other people, I do think it's genuine fear because I think a lot of Asian communities are rightly fearful right now. So they're going to latch onto that explanation. That's totally normal in human nature. But what's weird to me, Katie, is it feels like 30 seconds ago, half the discourse was like devoted to Asians are white. No, <laughs> I, was kidding. I was going a totally <laughs> different way with that. <laughs> Go on. 
I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding. Like, seriously, like half a second ago, people were making the argument that Asians are like white adjacent and benefit from white privilege. Um, but not this week. The other thing, uh, <laughs> it feels like 30 seconds ago, all anyone was talking about, especially after Elliot Rogers, was like incels and misogynistic murderers. Right. Right. The faddishness of this is so weird to me because, like, this is maybe the cleanest case we've seen based on what we know so far of someone who literally did hate sex workers. Like, you always see people being like, oh, you're in favor of this policy because you hate sex workers. Like, it's just an – like, this guy really seemed to hate sex workers enough to kill them. So to see people react to something like that, not by latching onto the best available explanation, but by trying to – Sort of like squeeze it uh, a square peg into the round hole of these anti-Asian hate crimes. The the conformity and fad chasing right now is so weird to me. Right, like this would be such a good opportunity to talk about like repressive religious uh, religious cultures and what this does to the psyche. But instead, we're talking about race. And we should also say, like, just because I know that we have a number of sex researchers and clinicians who listen to this podcast, a lot of people are also now talking about how the people who are talking about the sex worker angle um, are talking about, uh, you know, he, he apparently said that he was a sex addict. And I think some of our clinician friends um, would argue that there's no such thing as sex or yeah. porn addiction. So so the science is, is, is unsettled there. Yes. He can still think he is, even if it's not uh, an addiction in some technical right, sense. Right, right. Oh, I actually – I had one thing to read. This is um, a journalist who, who does really good reporting on like these horrible domestic violence cases named Melissa Jelson. She was recently laid off from Huffington Post. Side note, actually, I saw so many people fucking celebrating journalists getting laid off and just like, don't do that. I, there are some shitty journalists, but losing your job sucks and journalism is collapsing and journalism collapsing leads to bad coverage. Anyway, this is a little bit of a tweet storm from Melissa Jeltsin, formerly of HuffPo. I'll, I'll post it online, but um, or I'll post it in the show notes. A morning thread on the Atlanta shootings. One thing I've been thinking about is how the rush to attribute the violence to one true motive has actually made it harder to understand it in all its complexities. It's natural to want to make sense of it immediately, but in the absence of accurate information, that instinct can send us astray. See the Pulse Massacre. It was immediately understood as a hate crime targeting the LGBTQ community. Only much later did we learn this was untrue. So she just goes on in that vein. I'd, I'd recommend people read it. That's an example of why you want like actual experts, and she is an authority on this issue, being the ones who speak out about it, not just random people tweeting their feelings. Right. And the coverage of this has just been so bad. I mean, just especially NPR. I mean, they have managed to turn this entire thing, which might not have anything to do with race, into a story about race. And I totally understand the impulse there. But also, like, what kind of white supremacist kills white people or if he's going on, like, a fucking, like, racist terror? Um, and then, does, like you said, doesn't advertise why he right. did it, which he's failing to incite the terror, or maybe he knew Twitter would just assume. Right. I mean, he is. The terror has been incited, um, you know, and, and obviously, like, people are suffering and they are concerned and, and you can see why they are. But when when reporters just ignore the uh, the facts that aren't convenient, it terrorizes people for no reason. So, I mean, do Asian Americans need to be worried about uh, about, you know, white supremacists coming into their salons or Chinese restaurants or whatever and shooting them up? Probably not. Um, but of course, people are going to be super worried about this. Yep. Uh, anything else? Should we just rant about our online enemies for another hour? <sighs> That's what the Patreon's for. That's true. Uh, well, hey, thank you everyone for listening. As always, you can reach out at blocked and reported podcast at gmail.com. 
We are about to record a Patreon on two viral web comics that we hate. It's gonna be it's gonna be pretty spicy. Uh, Patreon.com slash blocks reported gets you at least three extra episodes a month. Uh, at the higher level, that's for five dollars. At the higher levels, you get video hangouts, AMAs, all sorts of goodies. Uh, we have a subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash blocked or imported. You guys will hear more about my book from me as the publication day approaches. But April 6th, the quick fix, please, 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 it would make a big deal if you could either pre-order it or request it to your library, which I think is as good as a sale and you can do that for free or do both. Yeah, buy Jesse's book so he'll stop asking you to. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, Brianna Wu runs a giant cockfighting ring out of a basement warehouse in Saugus, Mass. I have the receipts. I won't show them to you because I don't have time. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, please wipe the pizza grease off the receipts before you file them with HR. HR.